Thank you for joining us, and we hope that everyone listening is safe and well during these uncertain times. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Lisa Wood from the University of Western Australia School of Population and Global Health, and Dr Andrew Davies, the CEO at Homeless Healthcare, a specialist homeless general practice in Perth. We have a great conversation about the work Andrew and his team do providing healthcare to people who experience homelessness, as well as discussing the unique risks and challenges that this group faces during the coronavirus pandemic currently taking place. We hope that you enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Meaning of Health. I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we are very lucky to be talking with Professor Lisa Wood and Dr. Andrew Davies this week. Hello, thanks for coming. Hi, nice to be here. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Lisa, we'll start with you. Uh, I'm an Associate Professor in the School of Population and Global Health at the University of West Australia. I have been heavily involved in homelessness-related research and advocacy, I'd say, for the last four to five years, and I have a long history in uh, public health and health promotion um, over nearly three decades, uh, uh, both working out in the in government and uh, private sector and with uh, not-for-profit health organisations, and then uh, more recently in the university environment, but trying to do a lot of research that's relevant to the real world and particularly focused on more vulnerable population groups. And Andrew? Yeah, so I'm a GP. I basically accidentally fell into working with homeless people, um, but have been working with homeless people since 2004. Um, and I currently um, have the somewhat lofty title of CEO at Homeless Healthcare in Perth. Okay. And uh, do you just want to give us a bit of background on homeless healthcare, sort of the history and background and, and what where you guys are currently at these days? Wait, I think before we do that, can we also get a definition of what homelessness actually is? I think that's probably going to be really important as well. Lisa, <laughs> would you uh, like to? Uh... Yes, that, that is a good question, Courtney. It, I think, it is. Uh, and, and in fact, we often get asked it, uh, and there's actually quite different views. So uh, I think people often have a stereotype that homelessness is like the old man lying on a park bench or someone slumped in uh, the doorway of, uh, of a retail outlet or being moved on from a retail outlet if you're in the Perth CBD. Uh, but actually uh, there are some kind of fairly agreed definitions of homelessness and in uh, the Australian census uh, and in I guess the way that myself and Andrew would use it is that we look at the whole spectrum of people. Um, so primary homelessness, which is people who are rough sleeping, sleeping in caves, sleeping on beaches, sleeping in parks, uh, also people who maybe, you know, one night they're in a crisis shelter, the next night they're back out, back out in the street, uh, through to people who are couch surfing, uh, people who are overcrowded and so uh, homelessness in Aboriginal communities uh, in, incorporates people who where you've got 20 people living in one place because in the absence of that they would be uh, out on the street or in a park. And it includes people who are in uh, really precarious housing where essentially you can't count on from day to day or week to week that you could still be there uh, in, in the next week. So, so it's a whole spectrum uh, and homeless healthcare uh, does work across that spectrum. But um, I guess 
particularly what often springs to mind is the kind of more prominent uh, rough sleepers when people think about homelessness. And I think the bits that I'll uh, add to that is I usually think of homelessness as not having a secure tenancy. Um, so it's that sort of volatility um, and not knowing from one day to the next where you'll be. Um, the other thing is it's quite different to not having a house. So I'm always telling our medical students that you can actually be houseless but not homeless. And most of them look at me fairly confused. Um, but what we're talking about there is more the sort of traditional hunter-gatherer type societies where they don't have the building but they have the social connectedness. Um, you can also have a house but be homeless and what we mean by that is you've got the building and the roof over your head, but you don't have the usual friends and family to interact with. Okay. And so how does Homeless Health Corp operate to, to help those people out, that big group that you've just um, described for us nicely? Yeah, so it's a, a bit complicated. Um, I think what I would start with is actually saying um, – that when I first started working with uh, people experiencing homelessness, I was working on a, a health service and what became apparent to me over a couple of years that the bit that was really missing is the reason why people had such poor health um, was that they didn't have a house. So we run very much on a philosophy of you've got to, got to provide housing to be able to provide the health care. Um, we don't provide the housing, but we work in close um, connection with the people who do. Uh, so we have a number of uh, different sort of models for how we, we run. We have our mobile clinics where we go out and we set up for half a day, be it in a drop-in centre or transitional accommodation service or drug and alcohol rehab. Um, we also go to some domestic violence shelters. Uh, we have a fixed site clinic, which is a bit more like a traditional general practice um, that runs from West Leaderville. Um, in addition to that, we have a specialist mental health and drug and alcohol team that go out and see people um, in the different settings. We have an after-hours support service, which is nurses that um, go out with caseworkers to support people that have been um, rehoused and I'm sure I've missed something because I always do but um, there's lots of different bits and pieces that go on. Okay. Dual diagnosis. Your dual diagnosis. I did mention them. Oh okay sorry. Mm. <laughs> and so so you're yes. a c combination of um, doctors, nurses and other types of health support workers? So basically at the moment it, we consist of uh, mostly doctors and nurses. We do have some visiting allied health professionals like a physio, a counsellor um, and a podiatrist. Um, and we do have a caseworker that works with us. And I've just realised the bit that I'm missing is that we see people in Royal Perth Hospital mm -hmm. um, that are homeless. And so we have a caseworker that works with us there. Okay. Excellent. And so just on working with the population that you guys do work with generally, what, what sort of needs come up most of the time? You know, what are the most common things that people need help with? Sure. Um, so health is really bad. Uh, if you look at sort of life expectancy, it's somewhere in the mid to high 40s. 
Um, it's it's basically um, to sum it up is the idea of complex multimorbidity, and what we mean by that is that you have multiple problems. Um, they all interact with each other, and that's what causes the the poor health outcomes. It all interacts with the poor social environment. Um, so by far and away, the most common thing that we see are drug dependency issues, um, but closely sort of behind that are the mental health issues. Um, and and more than half of people have at least one physical health problem as well. Um, so the usual pattern is all three of those together, which we call trimorbidity. Um, yeah, so basically not used to seeing people come in with uh, single problems. They usually come in with at least uh, three or four and sometimes ten problems that need to be dealt with at once. Okay. And this is something that probably both of you will be able to speak to. So there's obviously a, a history behind that for each each person as to how they've ended up in, with those issues. Um, in your experience, what are some of the typical experiences people have that lead to them being in that position? There's a lot of different reasons why people end up homeless. Um, certainly for the street homeless population, it is largely a group of people who grew up with adverse childhood experiences, so um, abuse and sort of traumatic environments, um, and then may have ended up in foster care, start using drugs in their sort of early teenage years, um, and then the mental health problems start and they end up um, on the streets. But there really isn't any sort of typical pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, we have people who have been full-time employed, who for no fault of their own lose their job. Um, they don't have a lot of social connections that they can fall on, so friends and family, um, and they end up on the streets as well. If, if I can just add to that, Craig, uh, the, the kind of um, factors that Andrew outlined, uh, that's what is seen in other countries as well. And Suzanne Fitzpatrick is someone who's led a lot of research on that in uh, Scotland, looking at uh, adverse childhood experiences and just that cumulative impact. And, and what she argues really powerfully is that by the time you see someone on the street uh, or in a, in a hospital ward really sick, that's often like the, that's the kind of really the, the tipping point uh, of their homelessness and there's been a lot of things um, underlying that. What what I've noticed though comparing perhaps uh, the factors that contribute to homelessness in Australia and amongst uh, Andrew's uh, patients I think your connection may have uh, frozen <laughs> there Lisa. And adversity of Aboriginal people, so that uh, they constitute um, around a third of uh, people homeless in WA overall, about 41% of um, Andrew's rough sleepers that he saw last year uh, are Aboriginal people. And and I think the other thing we know, sadly, for Australia is that we seem to be ahead of some other countries with family domestic violence as a, as a driver of homelessness amongst women, and, and that's the Australian stat is that that's the, the major driver of homelessness amongst Australian women. Uh, in those 20 to 40 year age group. Mm. Right. So um, you were talking about how homelessness is really just like this 
everything's kind of happening at once and there's lots of things that influence uh, why, why people are homeless and uh, what else is affecting them, particularly with their health outcomes. How exactly does providing a home uh, help them with their health outcomes? So instead of maybe providing a, a social uh, interaction thing for them. So life on the streets is pretty chaotic. Um you know, the usual sort of pattern is that you don't get much sleep at night because you're you're awake protecting whatever of your little possessions that you've got. Um, if you do get any sleep, it's during the day. Um, your priorities are basic survival. So where are you going to get food? Where are you going to go to the bathroom? Um, how are you going to keep warm or cool in, in summer? Um, you really don't have any ability to address uh, what we call higher-level higher needs such as health problems. Um, so you, you just can't. You can't. And even if you wanted to, there's a whole lot of barriers that prevent a person from getting into healthcare, um, particularly primary healthcare, um, appointments are difficult, having money to get the, get to the actual clinic that you want to go to. Um, previous poor experiences with the health system and, and um, that can be anything from a, a GP practice manager asking you to, to leave because you're unkempt and the person next to you in the waiting room has complained um, through to the doctor telling you that there's nothing they can do for you or you're just a drug problem. Um, and so people just give up hope and, and don't actually seek care. Once you get a house, then a lot of the sort of very basic needs like the shelter, well, the shelter's definitely sorted, but it enables you to deal with your, your need for food and water on a regular basis. And so you can actually start to deal with your health problems um, and can actually be a bit more reliable with appointments. Um, often people do need support with, with that, but um, it does at least give them a chance to deal with their chronic health problems. Mm. And so what's the, what is the interaction between what you do at Homeless Healthcare and how people can have some of their non-health needs addressed, enabling you guys to then do your job? How, how, how can you facilitate that and, and how can people? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, we see people regardless of what their situation is. And so even if they're, say, on the streets, we still see them and treat them and do the best that we can for their health problems. But what we've found is if you don't work with the agencies that support people into housing, then you don't get that really big change in their health. It all sort of has to happen at the same time. So it really helps that they've got a relationship with us while they're on the streets. So when they do get housed, then their health is already there and actually working with the person. Um, yeah, so you, I've really think that you've got to do all of it together because the problems are so complicated that if you try and chip away at just 
one bit of it, it doesn't work. Okay. Um, and, and just for, to add to for that. Example, for example, sorry, Lisa, um, but if you're, say, got a mental health issue such as schizophrenia and it's not treated and you're put in housing, because of the nature of the illness, it's going to be very difficult for you to keep that housing. Uh, I was just going to add that one of the uh, the great things that uh, WA has uh, that uh, no other um, state of Australia has at the moment in the same way and, and other countries also envy is the partnership between uh, Homeless Healthcare and, and other health services and the Royal Perth Homeless Team with uh, 50 Lives, 50 Homes, which is a housing first led initiative. And, and housing first is an international model and, and, and part of the model is that you provide people with wraparound support and you house people as rapidly as possible and then you put in place the things that are needed to address health and other issues. But I think the unique thing that um, has been able to happen in Western Australia is that you've got people like Andrew and Dr Amanda Stafford from Royal Perth Hospital actually sitting around in uh, the Rough Sleepers Working Group uh, the actual to share information in, in real time. Uh, uh, there's an after-hours team that goes out to people's houses, they can uh, access support uh, on the weekend and weekdays and there's always a homeless healthcare nurse as part of that. So uh, that kind of healthcare and with the after-hours team, it's, a, it's an after-hours nurse and a caseworker. So, and I've been out with that team a few times and it really is those two things literally happening together, as Andrew said, and, you, and it's really hard to unpick what bits the health and what bits the, the social and other supports at times because... As we know, they're all interrelated and, and it kind of has to work seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And so how, how do people get identified as needing help by one of those agencies? How do, how do they come into that network? With uh, 50 Lives, 50 Homes, uh, that does use a kind of international tool called um, Be Us For That, which, which is really just a, uh, a screening tool that was developed in the US initially to look at uh, people's vulnerability and vulnerability to health. So the initial idea of it was about, you know, looking at self-reported data on, you know, how many health issues do people have? Have they um, been to hospital a lot in the last six months? But it also looks at things like whether they've ever been in prison, whether they've ever been in foster care, whether they've um, experienced trauma. And so that kind of gives people a score in effect. And that's been really valuable for uh, 50 Lives, 50 Homes in terms of triaging because we just don't have enough housing, unfortunately, and everyone's lamenting that and we don't have enough caseworkers to support people. So the Royal Perth Hospital Homeless Team and Andrew's nurses, uh, they're all trained up to use that tool. So that that's kind of a, um, a quick way that you can see who who is really vulnerable and, and invariably the score correlates enormously with, with chronic health conditions and, and nearly all of those people have trauma and other things. But there's also, uh, it's not like a hard and fast thing, so there's definitely been in our evaluation of 50 lives there's been people where Andrew or Andrew or other medical people have gone into bat for someone to say that this person really urgently needs uh, housing with support or or they're not going to survive uh, out in the street and and so again that's where the the voice of uh, medical people with the social determinants kind of mindset is is really powerful um, in, as part of a homelessness sector intervention. Mm. I think the other thing I'd add to that is the sort of idea of outreach. So if you're not prepared to leave your office and go and find homeless people where they are, 
and meet them where they're at, then you are not going to be able to engage with them. They won't come in and see you. So, so what what sort of uh, places does that mean you guys end up um, going to? Um, so caves, caves. Yes, <laughs> caves. Um, um, everywhere except the dumpster. Um, pretty much, it's it's the the nurses that do street outreach at the the moment. We're hoping to get some doctors doing it as well. Um, really, do just go to those places where. We know homeless people are and engage with them and get them starting to think about their health and housing. Okay. So there could be anywhere, a park or, um, yeah. you know, homeless shelters as well or temporary accommodation? Yeah, we don't have a shelter system in Perth, so um, we, we don't have that. I think they're actually a hideous concept, um, but that's a whole different talk. Um, <laughs> the The... But, yeah, certainly the parks under the bridges, caves that they've gone to, they really do go anywhere. Okay. Excellent. All right. So we've sort of covered a general kind of overview of what you guys do on a day-to-day basis, and that's been going for some time now. Um, So more recently we've had an extra level of challenge um, brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. So I was interested to know how that's affected your, your population and also the sort of services you're having to provide? I think so far we haven't had COVID infections in the homeless community that we know of mm-hmm. um, or fairly minimal numbers if we have. Um, what we have been seeing is a lot of the anxiety Um so it's hard enough to deal with what's going on when you do have a house, got somewhere where you can isolate, um, basically stay away from people. If you're living on the streets, people are on top of you all the time. You can't isolate. Um, you're worried that you're going to get it. Um, certainly we're worried that if people get it, then they're more at risk of bad outcomes from it. Um, but we've certainly on our uh, street health service have seen about a tripling in the numbers, which is just from the anxiety um, that's out there about COVID. Mm. Why would people who are homeless um, be at a greater risk than, than any other people in society? Um, so there's a few things that uh, we got from some research in China that, would indicate um, that certain comorbidities or other illnesses um, make it more likely that you are going to have bad outcome and pass away from a COVID infection. Um, The biggest one actually was people who were pretty much over the age of 70. Um, But one of the things I learned very early on working with homeless people is their chronological age is not the actual age that they are and they age a lot faster than the average person in the population. So 70 for someone living in housing is about equivalent to 50 for someone who's homeless. Um, So although our population is relatively young, we have a lot of people that are over the age of 50 who are likely to not do well if they get COVID infection. 
Um, we have a lot of comorbidities, but particularly the um, cardiovascular disease, respiratory diseases, um, got to say diabetes here, otherwise Lisa will eat me alive. Um, <laughs> um, big thing, Andrew. <laughs> immune suppression. It is a big thing. but uh, And also the smoking rates. I mean, we know that sort of 78% of our patients smoke. Um, which also which puts them more at risk of getting infection, but they're also more at risk of having lung disease that puts them at risk of dying from the infection as well. Mm. Yeah, so what... Um, um, Craig, if I can... Oh, sorry, Courtney, go. Go for it. <laughs> oh, I was just going to add that um, I think the other reason why uh, we are concerned about COVID and the homeless population is uh, because we're seeing uh, what's happening overseas and uh, working closely with some colleagues uh, that we have in particularly in the UK. Andrew and I happened to be in the UK at a homeless and health conference when COVID really started to escalate. We were talking about it our first day there at, at dinner and kind of speculating whether it would be as big as what people thought. By the time it came to the conference a few days later, there was a whole session about it. We had uh, some really key people from University College London that worked with Michael Marmot and his epi group presenting on the risks and through to um, myself and another UWA colleague virtually having to get extradited to try and get back to Australia. So we really saw uh, COVID ramp up at that time and I think it was, um, whilst it was a bit stressful for us to get home and then Andrew and myself both had to go into isolation separately, mm -hmm. uh, there was that um, we were really looped into the fact that in some other countries, they've kind of been trying to get onto this quickly and so really trying to get uh, rough sleepers off the street as quickly as possible, trying to set up uh, accommodation options where you're not putting everyone in together but you're you're screening and assessing people from the outset so that those who are not, not symptomatic and low risk might be going to one kind of accommodation. Those who've got symptoms and need testing are going somewhere else where you can isolate them initially. And Andrew and I are quickly trying to work up a model that they're using uh, in the UK where you also have another dedicated facility where anyone who has tested positive uh, and um, is, or is not well or is waiting the test outcome not well, that, that they can go there and get um, the medical response. So I think we're trying to be really um, uh, proactive and I guess, you know, for me sitting in a school of um, population and public health, that, that that's the key thing that we don't want to be caught out like we've seen in some of the US cities where there's been people who tested positive in hospitals who were homeless, discharged the street. There's shelters that have had to close down overnight uh, or lock everyone down because uh, because of risk. So that that's what we're trying to prevent. Hmm. And and so, what advice would you be giving to people who are homeless that maybe is different to the general population? Because you know, myself and and Craig, like we've got homes to go to where we can self isolate and look after um, ourselves, but that's the advice we're given. So what, what advice would you give to people who are homeless that's a bit different? I think um, there's, it's got to be tailored a bit to the individual. Um, so uh, we have some rooms in one of the hotels, which certainly um, suits some people. Um, it can be very difficult and quite isolating to be stuck in a hotel room for the duration. Um, then, you know, if anyone has got friends or 
family that they can reconnect with um, and move back in with them, then that that's great. Those that don't have anyone, you know, can we find them housing um, and find it fast? It's, it's not easy, but um, we certainly need to be trying very hard at getting as many people into housing as we can. And for those that really are sort of stuck on the streets and none of those options seem to be suiting them, I'm like, get a tent. Don't share it with anyone. Go and stay in the tent and isolate there. It's not ideal, but it's better than them walking around the city centre spreading COVID. Mm. What about your other hot tip, Andrew? Don't share your asthma puffer (laughs) or your cigarette. (laughs) Anything else. Oh dear. Yeah. So we did. We, that was one of the first things we did when we got back because we were. It seemed like services working with people homeless. We knew there was anxiety on the street, and services working with them, going, we've, "We've got nothing to tell people, and we can't just refer them to a government website because even if they have, you know, that kind of data plan to access it, it's going to say, wash your hands all the time, use your hand sanitizer, stay at home.'" And so Andrew and I came across a resource that had been done in the UK by Groundswell, which is an amazing organisation. It has a lot of lived experience input from people who are homeless. And they put together something that, w- that was much more practical. And so we quickly um, adapted, it, adapted it for WA. But, but it was some of that really practical stuff, like this is the time not to be sharing needles, cigarettes, you know, asthma, inhaler. Um, what do you do if you can't access, you know, soap and hand sanitizer? So we tried to put in some of that really practical stuff as well as, explaining what COVID is in a way that um, is factual but not not alarming. And and also I think a big fear for people was are all the services going to shut down that we rely on for food relief and day centres? And so we had a little section in there on that and as things change, we, we're kind of updating it. Yeah, so I'm interested to pick up on you said that you've got a hotel for people to stay in now. So can you tell me a bit more about how that's come about? I might speak to that first. Uh, so uh, there was a, a, a very amazingly compassionate general manager of one of the five-star hotels in Perth who approached the home sector just late last week, actually, uh, and said would like to make uh, up to four floors available in his hotel uh, for people uh, who are who are homeless. And I think there's a lot of pressure in, on WA hotels at the moment to take on some of the, the cruise ship people mm-hmm. Uh around COVID and and he was really keen to make his hotel or part of it available for people who were local and and in real need. So we've seen an amazingly speedy collaboration between uh, a range of organisations, the hotel themselves, homeless services, uh, homeless healthcare has been integrally involved. Uh, UWA, we've been involved in helping them develop a bit of a, a tool for screening who's most at risk because if, if there's only limited places at the beginning, we want to make sure the people going in there are, are those who are really most vulnerable, even though ideally we want to get everyone off the street as quickly as possible. So mm-hmm. uh, that that came together with a lot of uh, weekend work from everyone involved and uh, began on Monday and was uh, announced um, or formally publicised uh, by the government on, on Tuesday morning because they're putting some funds into it. And uh, so I think uh, there's... There's just over 20 people in there at the moment uh, and and what's been really heartening with that is, uh, you know, there's obviously going to be a few teething issues because it's something that we haven't done before but uh, there there have been some hotels doing it in the UK. 
Uh, but the general manager is just, he came out saying it was one of his uh, career highlights to be there welcoming these people. They're calling them their special VIP guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said the people, they're so grateful. Uh, he said maybe some of his other guests could mm-hmm. <laughs> could, could learn from that. So I think uh, it, it's been really fantastic, but, but I'm aware also that there's people in the sector and in the community saying, well, that's great um, for that small number of people. What about uh, everyone else? We know just from Andrew's data that, you know, just last year he had about um, nearly 800 of his patients, you know, that that were rough sleeping. Many of those had been into hospital for conditions that put them at risk of COVID fatality. fatality. So uh, there is an urgency around getting as many people into accommodation as possible. And as Andrew said, that that's challenging and we have to kind of tap into whatever we can. Uh, mm. And so we're really hoping, I think, for those of us that have been involved in that hotels option that, uh, other accommodation providers will will come forward. But we would argue that it's got to have that access to the health support. So we already know that for those who've gone in there, uh, smoking withdrawal is a big issue, uh, you know, that people were allowed to smoke their last pack down to the down to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, drug withdrawal is going to be an issue, uh, anxiety, the isolation of being in a room on your own. So it, it's not just about putting people into a room and, and saying, great, we've done that. It, it's about the health support. It's critical. And yeah, okay. Lisa, what do you think are going to be the the longer term outcomes of this? Because like obviously this was um, this happened because of COVID, um, and uh, because of someone's generosity. But if they're in hotel rooms or, or a place that they can stay for six weeks, I feel like there probably are going to be some longer term outcomes that will be positive because of it. What do you think they're going to be? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question, Courtney. I think in the really short term, uh, I think even just. For some of those people, well-being—the fact that they're getting three meals a day, uh, you got a bath and a bed to sleep in without worrying about someone attacking you—so uh, I think that the really short-term kind of gains of just those those tangible things that we all take for granted. I think a lot of people in the sector are really conscious of uh, what we what we would hate to see is that people uh, have this accommodation for say four to six weeks, and then if miraculously COVID kind of tapers off. Uh, uh, the last thing we want to see is that those people are put back on the street. So a lot of services are going to be working really hard to say this has catapulted um, a solution, uh, but we need to make it more permanent. And and I saw some coverage in the UK where they said that their their current homelessness strategy had a plan to house or accommodate all rough sleepers within uh, five years. And then the government announced mid last week that that people had two days to get every rough sleeper off the street. So it, it kind of shows you that things can be done uh, if there's a, a reason, and I would hate to think we would slip back to perhaps the complacency that we've seen previously around the urgency of, of getting people into housing. But it has to be permanent yeah. housing. I mean, this is just a temporary solution. Yeah. Um, okay. And, Andrew, a question for you. Do you Are you concerned as we move into autumn and then winter that there's going to be an increase in, in the types of problems because of the change in the weather? I think all of us are a little bit concerned. Um, Certainly if peak COVID happens at the same time as the peak of the flu season, um, it's going to be quite devastating, I think, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so do you foresee any issues for your staff that are treating this group and and do you have anything kind of in place to try and protect them? Um, So, of of course, we've got a... you know, as much as we can in place to protect them. Mm-hmm. Um, the the difficulty is that we're 
I mean, it's almost impossible to source PPE, so personal protective equipment at the moment. We've got a small supply of it, um, but if this really does sort of turn into a full swing, then we don't have enough that are available at the moment. Um, and then, of course, we have the problem that, you know, people who are unwell or suspected to have COVID need to go into isolation until they have a negative test. Um, if they do have COVID, they'll be off work for a couple of weeks. Um, so it may cause staffing, staffing issues for us as well. Okay. And something that's come up in some of the coverage I've heard about this is the fact that um, health workers who may have contracted the virus and recovered could become quite invaluable moving forward. Do you, uh, do you foresee that kind of impacting on your practice? I, I, I'm not sure. Sh- don't know. I haven't really thought about that terribly much. Um, from a personal point of view, I got unwell with symptoms that could have been COVID and I actually was hoping that it was so that I would then be immune mm-hmm. um, and wouldn't have to worry too much about um, getting it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, that unfortunately wasn't or fortunately wasn't or I'm not sure. Um yeah. But it does mean that every time I get uh, sick from now on, I have to go into isolation and um, wait until I have COVID swabs back before I can go back to work. So, so have you been tested yet, or you ha- you haven't had a test? Twice yet? already. Twice, okay. <laughs> yeah. Both negative. Both negative. <laughs> okay. Um. All right. And just from your experience so far, have you have you got any observations to share for what you're seeing going on out there in the in the community? Anything that's been done particularly well or that needs to be improved? I think we've, it's been remarkable how we've managed to get the um, hotel facility up and running for those that don't have COVID to protect them from getting it. I think that we really do need to get a facility up for homeless people who are awaiting that test result or actually have COVID. Um, so that they can be accommodated um, because the last thing we want is people not being able to isolate when they've got COVID infection. Um, Yeah, I mean, you could always say that there's stuff that we could do better um, and you can always say we need more money to do that, Um, but I think the job that people have been doing so far has been quite exceptional. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Lisa? I would agree uh, with Andrew on that. I I think it, um, I mean, there's so much rhetoric about uh, collaboration and people work together and cross-sectoral collaboration and all that, and uh, it sounds a cliche, but it really has taken a uh, pandemic to accelerate that at a pace that I never would have managed, imagined possible, uh, mm-hmm. you know, even even a month ago. And so that's that's been fantastic. And I think uh, it, it, a lot of it's about, you know, doing things with with due diligence and evidence based, but also acting swiftly and also being innovative and uh, being prepared to give things a go. So I think that that's kind of a challenge for organisations. Everyone's got their own kind of either bureaucratic um, hierarchy or governance processes, and and I think uh, some organisations are more able to act nimbly than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for myself um, and kind of my involvement, which is obviously not as hands-on as, as Andrew, but uh, it's been really great the amount of 
uh, information sharing and idea sharing between both our colleagues in the UK and we've got some colleagues we're working close with in Sydney, New South Wales, just piggybacking literally off each other in terms of information we're getting out there, obstacles we're running into. Uh, and I think um, that kind of people just totally leaving their logos and egos at the door and and just being prepared to um, to share things, being prepared to admit that, you know, like even with the hotel thing, you know, that there's some teething issues, Not no point being precious and saying it, it's perfect, but we just get to get on and do it. So I think um, that's really great. But, yeah, I would say that for me the this issue of getting other people off the street urgently it is paramount and as Andrew said right at the beginning it, it, it's not really just about the, the COVID risk it's that uh, people are really anxious and just over this last week we've seen every day a ramping up of the restrictions and you know to the point now that you know if you're seen out in public with more than two people you could get uh, fined so really I mean we're talking about a population group that already unfortunately often feels uh marginalised, they they can perceive that other people see them as, as social lepers or on the fringe or they aren't valued as much. And and so the more that the rest of us are in our houses, uh, staying at home, self-isolating, doing all the things we've been told to do, uh, the message that signals to people who are homeless or other people who can't do that, I think, uh, really disturbs me, I think, from a kind of... Um, social equity point of view and social justice point of view and it also means that those most vulnerable are actually left uh, most at risk both in terms of uh, the kind of mental health repercussions but also the uh, the disease risk. So mm. I really hope we see a turnaround on that in the following week. Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm just going to I'm gonna ask a tricky question here because it's something I'll that... I'll go to Andrew. <laughs> it's something that I've been thinking about because, you know, I've been following the news and all this kind of stuff. And uh, in, in Australia, we're obviously we're very lucky because the majority of, majority of us aren't homeless. So in comparison to a lot of uh, overseas areas, our population of homelessness is, is relatively small. It's still important, but it's relatively small. Um a lot of the news articles that I've been reading have saying that uh, COVID-19 is an equaliser. It affects everyone the same way. But given all the stuff that we've been talking about, I have a feeling that isn't necessarily true. Um, how do you think it's going to affect countries that have a larger homeless population than us, for example? Do you think it's going to be worse for them? I think um, that... Uh... Lisa forgot one important group of people when she was talking about our colleagues, and that's our, our colleagues that are in North America at the moment. Mm -hmm. The absolute explosion in numbers that we've seen there over the last week. Um, they're basically living a, a hell that we haven't even contemplated yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and it's, it's almost like... Pardon the pun that their health system is on life support and they really can't get enough resources in to try and help those who are acutely ill. Um, and, and it seems to be very concentrated in a couple of key places like New York. Um, so if it does spread there, I can't imagine what the consequences will be. Yeah, and it was New York, I think, that I just saw a couple of days ago, I think uh, 22 shelters had had to close because of uh, people testing positive. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, and what, you know, it, it literally is kind of closing it after the horse has bolted. If they're closing shelters once there's been uh, a positive case detected and who knows where people are. And and I think, um, I mean, we sit in the School of Population and Global Health and, and I can't help but think of uh, the forms of homelessness you see in uh, places like uh, India and the Philippines and others where there's mass poverty and, and people just, you know, the shantytown that I've seen in Manila and just the, the thousands of people crowded there. If if it, it gets into those communities, I, I, I can't even bear to think about yeah. uh, what would happen and the health infrastructure of those countries is is just struggling with the, mm. with the basics. Um, so... So that's a nightmare waiting to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, I've seen images from Indonesia, from Jakarta in particular, of people just literally can't breathe on the side of the road, um, you know, as it goes through there, and that, that's a massive population. So, uh, and a health system that, that struggles at the best of times. So I can't imagine what's going to happen as this progresses. Um, yeah, that's no, really a concern in those parts of the world that have less resources than us. So I think now more than ever... We need communities to really help out our, our population of people who are homeless. So is there a way that we can assist uh, homeless health care, for example, uh, to help out, or is there anything else that we can do to help out our, the, the population that are homeless? Um, uh, you got a stash of PPE, Courtney? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately yeah, yeah. not. <laughs> But, um, I mean, that, that said, Homeless Healthcare is a, a charity. Um, we do basically put all of our money into providing care for homeless people um, and any any sort of financial contribution would be um, greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, if someone's sitting out there with lots of PPE, I'd um, love to talk to them. Or if you've got so, a 3D printer is what I've heard, so you can, <laughs> you can print some 3D stuff. <laughs> and the other thing I heard this morning is I'm sitting on a task force with the Department of Communities around homelessness and COVID and uh, there was someone there from uh, Volunteers WA mentioned this morning that they've set up a, uh, a portal where people can uh, offer to volunteer for a whole range of things to do with COVID, but certainly... Uh, it was brought up this morning that there's opportunities if people particularly uh, feel passionate about the issue of homelessness uh, that they've um, they'll be able to kind of direct people to mm-hmm. to things that they might be able to assist with. Very, very good. Just quickly, where can people find out a bit more about homeless healthcare and, and how they might be able to get involved, Andrew? Probably the easiest way is if they um, go to the website, which is um, simply homelesshealthcare.org.au. Okay, excellent. And uh, yeah, I guess just an observation to to finish with is that um, the health of people like people who are homeless, people in prisons and, and where they haven't got control over their environment, it has implications for everybody in society because we're all sharing public transport. We're all going to be in shared spaces at some point, you know, as, during this pandemic. So I feel like the work you guys are doing is is for the benefit of everybody, not just the people experiencing homelessness. I agree. Yeah, Does that's anyone... for sure, and and that's and I guess that comes back to that public health perspective, doesn't it? It's about you know targeting where where the risk is to minimise the impact on on the whole population. Yeah, just before we do wrap up, does anyone have anything else they wanted to add or to raise that we haven't spoken about yet? No, that's it. All right, I don't well, think so. Okay, well, I'd like to thank 
Lisa and Andrew, for your time very much. Thank you. Yes, thank and, you very much uh, for being a part of this. I think it was incredibly useful and it's, it's always good to get a, a different perspective about things that are happening around our world, I guess. Yes, and we will put all the uh, information where people can find out more in the show notes. Uh, but, yeah, oh, thanks, great. thanks very much, thank everybody. Thank you. Thanks for your support. That was Professor Lisa Wood and Dr. Andrew Davies. As discussed during the episode, Homeless Healthcare are a charitable organisation, and we have included links in the show notes should you wish to find out more about the work they do and also how you might be able to support them. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you have any thoughts that you want to share with us, email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. Stay safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode in a week or so. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Craig Cumming.